why are there so many programming languages? And given that there are so many, how come people are still creating more of them? I mean, it's a lot of work, right? It's a heck of a lot of work to do something we seem to have plenty of. Why bother? I think there are a few really compelling reasons. Some people do it for research. They have an idea of how programming could look in the future, how it could be. And they want to take that idea for a walk, put it through its paces, explore it further. Other people create a new language because they're cherry picking. They look out into the world and say, well, I like Python's programming model, but I want C syntax and some of Go's concurrency features. So I'm going to put them together in something new, a bit like a recipe making. They're baking their own cake. And other people build a language because there's a hole in the market. Like JavaScript is the famous example. It exists because browsers needed a programming language. So someone had to create one. And that's actually my favorite thing about JavaScript. It took you to somewhere you couldn't have gone without it. But all these motivations come together in the creation of a relatively new programming language called Gleam. You might not have heard of Gleam, but stick around because you're about to. I'll give you one metric. If GitHub stars are anything to measure by, it is apparently more popular than F sharp. So let's find out why. I'm joined today by the very charming Louis Pilfold, who's the creator of the Gleam programming language. And he's going to tell us why he thought the world needed a new language, how he survived for the multi-year crazy journey it takes to go from idea to production, and you know what Gleam has to offer us as programmers. We're all out there trying to get a job done. Can Gleam help us do it better, faster, easier, cheaper, more fun? Any of those? Some of the above? Well, let's find out. Let's get cracking. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Louis Pilfold. I'm joined today by Louis Pilfold. Louis, how are you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Pleasure. Yeah, it's good to see you. We haven't met in person since before the pandemic. Oh, since before the event. Yes. Um, the event. <laughs> the event that I, shall not be named. Yeah, I, I keep having to bump into you, but um, yeah, just digital will do yeah. for now. They'll have to, even though London's not that large. But no, yeah, I, I'll I do it online. I feel like with, with the same city and similar interests, we would have bumped into each other at a tech or something with lots of people making bloops and bloops with synthesizers and stuff, but no, nothing yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sooner or later, we'll, we'll cross paths again. But for now, I have been keeping tabs on you mm-hmm. in my secret tracking cave. Ominous. You've been busy writing a whole programming language. I have. It's a, it, it, yeah, it sort of started as a pet project and grew wildly out of control and is now dangerously useful, which is quite nice. See, that's something I want to get into, but first we should probably set the frame and what is your language is called gleam right Mm. yes what is it why do we need a new language well so i think it really comes from me being always a little bit so i'm a person who loves languages which i I think you are as well so i always try and Mm. i used used to try and learn a new one um or two or three like every year or so (laughs) and i reached this point where i was just annoyed with every language because when i was writing (laughs) When I was writing Elm, I wished I was writing Haskell. When I was writing Haskell, I wish I was writing Erlang. When I was writing Erlang, I wish I was writing Rust. You know, it's like, I wish I had yeah. that bit from there and that bit from there. This would be really easy if I had that. And so, yeah, yeah I ended up sort of like saying, well, what happens if I try to like draw all of the best bits? Could I make something that was like cohesive and really nice? Or would it just be, you know, a, a horrible mash of bells and whistles and nothing quite fitting together? Um, See, I I know a few languages that have asked that question, and their answer has been a horrible mess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling about your answer? I, I good. I, so I think um, it's tricky. I, I I took a lot of inspiration from Lua and Go, and that you know, as a functional program, don't let that put you off. I don't mean in the like it's it's a very simple procedural language, but like I tried to make the surface area of the language very small, and try to make yeah. it um, very consistent. Well, m- Hopefully more so than Go, I think. Um, and yeah, it's just sort of like what what are the what are the really valuable things from these different types of languages, which I think are really interesting. And then how can we take the smallest amount of all of them and make it as consistent as possible? Um, 
which I think is not the way a lot of people go for languages. It seems to be like adding more, but I'm trying to like have less. Um, and yeah, a bunch of years in, it seems like it's really resonating with a lot of people. So that's quite nice. I'm pretty happy with that's that. That's very cool. Okay, so tell tell us what your um, what you've picked from the buffet car of languages. <laughs> so um, it is a simple functional language uh, in sort of in the style of Elm, perhaps. You, I think you're an Elm fan from the past. I'm an so, Elm fan, yeah. So you know, there's there, there's um, the language got quite a small number of features, and we generally say like, well, you've got functions, and they take in values, and they return values, and you kind of ignore everything else. That's sort of all you need. But rather than having like an Elm syntax, although we did originally have a syntax like that, we've got a syntax that's much more familiar to, um, you know, JavaScript programmers or C programmers, you know, lots of curly braces and all that stuff. And I originally yeah. thought, oh, what's, what's the point of that? You know, it's just syntax, it doesn't matter. And then we switched syntax and suddenly everyone was like, oh, this language is great now. It's like, nothing's changed. <laughs> so I was wrong. Syntax really does matter. Um, and I, I sort of missed the old one, but, but you know, the new one people really like, so... Um, and the thing that is, I think one of the big sales of it is that it runs on the Erlang virtual machine, which is called the beam, which, um, is unusual for a virtual machine that is, is designed for functional languages from the get go. And rather than being like a, a research project, like a lot of functional things are, it was built for industry, you know, it was built for, um, uh, telephone switches, uh, Ericsson. So it's got loads or it's really built with, um, uh, running and maintaining and debugging, um, you know, really reliable systems. Ah, that's interesting. So the the main thing I know about the Beam, other than it's not Apache Beam, it's Erlang Beam. Yes, is it's famed for its novel approach to reliability. Yes, yes. So like, um, we're trying to do both in Gleam. You know, there's all these arguments between between the the typing people and the Erlang people about how do you should deal with errors like oh you should make it impossible in the in the in the Elm world you know make make invalid states uh, unrepresentable in your program which is actually yeah. really fa fantastic technique to do that but all the Erlang people are like no that's rubbish because like how do you make um how do you make memory corruption impossible in your application what happens if you're one of, what if you've got a cluster of computers and one of them gets struck by a bolt of lightning because it's up a telephone pole doing you know running right. telephone switch firmware Oh yeah, you can't really do that with types, can you? So the whole thing is about failure is going to happen. You just have to lean into that. Your entire system needs to be able to, to to explode in some dramatic way, and you should be able to survive that. And um, it sort of boils down to the sort of you know IT crowd. Have you tried turning it off and on type thing and <laughs> breaking your system into loads of tiny little bulkheads? Where like, oh, when everything's gone wrong in this subsystem, okay, let's restart that. Did that fix it? No. Okay. Well, let's go one step bigger. What if we re reset? Uh, what if we discard the corrupted state in that system and then just like slowly, incrementally drop things up? So you you, okay. you can kind of see parallels between the beam um, and maybe Kubernetes or something. You know, so if you've got a you've got a, a pod, a deployment of a of a web service that's running Go or something, and something goes wrong in it, well, the VM the um, sorry not the VM the instance goes down. And then Kubernetes brings it back up again, and then it should be a good state. And you've lost those jobs that are in in progress, but then it should be okay. That's really cool, but kind of rubbish in that like that single instance of a Go program is probably running hundreds or maybe thousands of of jobs at the same time. So losing the whole thing sucks. So like imagine if at that you could have that whole pattern, but rather than at like a sort of data center level, you could have it inside your program level where your your single um, VM instance is really running hundreds, thousands, millions of threads, and you can do that incremental state shedding at the individual thread level. So maybe you just lose like one web request or yeah. something like that? Yeah, the idea is, I mean, you, you can sort of do this sort of thing of like, you know, try catch in, in, in um, you know, other languages, but it, it's sort it's of much more, it's taking the idea of like, you know, we'll catch it and we deal with it, but in a much more, um, ooh, how do I describe it? In, in a much more fine-grained and sort of sophisticated way than you would do in other languages. And it just results in, um, yeah, you, it results in extremely reliable services. Like there's companies that claim nine nines of reliability with Erlang, which I, you know, I'm not sure I've ever seen proof of that. But the fact that they can <laughs> claim it and people go, oh, maybe, you know, I think that says a lot about how how good this thing is. And it also means but you can do things on the radar to look at, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the fact that it's plausible implies that, yeah, this is really, you know, 
extremely you know, extremely good and it means you can do things like offensive programming quite happily so like i'm just never going to check any of the errors i'm just going to insist that everything succeeds and if it fails well i don't need to write any error handling logic in my business logic that can be dealt with out there in the ether with um non-local error handling as they might call it I've always wondered, does that just result in systems that are constantly trying and crashing and trying and crashing in an infinite loop of let it crash? Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay. Sort of. Sort of. Like, uh, there's, a, there's a company called, oh, I don't know how to pronounce their name. That's embarrassing. But they, they're, one of, they're, um, they're the people who run PureScript on the Erlang virtual machine, and they do video streaming. Um, okay. And they said they had a bug where... Um, the system would crash every 100 frames or something like that. And um, they didn't notice for eight months because <laughs> it, it just ran so well. Like they didn't notice any, any problems in the area. It would, just, it would run for 100 frames, crash, system would restart that tiny little subsystem, and then it would continue. Oh, so it was picking up after every hundredth yeah. frame, and they got yeah, the it's just like, oh, well, we'll just retry that frame. And it carries on. <laughs> and they just didn't know. And I was like, maybe they should improve their, you know, monitoring. But the fact that you can, the fact, you know, so if we think about running systems in production, um, we want to, we want it to continue working for our users, but you also not to want to have a really stressful time when it does go wrong. So you know, when yes. when things do start crashing, you do want to know about it, and there's lots of mechanisms for that, and you do want to be able to debug it, and there's lots of mechanisms for that. But mainly, you don't want to, like, you know, be woken up at three in the morning with people screaming down the phone saying, you've got to fix it, you've got to fix it. You want to be able to do it in, like, the most um, low-stress way possible, right? So yeah, yeah. it's all about it holding itself together um, just well enough for you to, to deal with whatever the problem is. Right. Because that kind of monitoring, debugging, and failure handling baked mm. in from the start in industry, I think really appeals yeah and i've often like for the sake of the platform the beam mm. i have gone towards um erlang for mm. a look and erlang's really weird yeah and yeah. i say that as a lisp haskell programmer <laughs> erlang's weird right <laughs> it's weird. and it's put me off every time yeah I, th I think that's i think that's part of the problem so like uh, the erlang the erlang runtime's got these amazing properties because they come from real world uh requirements you know um you know hmm. we want to make sure that a, a greedy uh thread greedy green thread can never block the scheduler and cause any problems or anything else so you can have a hot loop and it just everything continues running that's fine and we want it to if someone someone says it's bad regex we don't want it to block the scheduler if we if something crashes we don't want it to bring down the system all these things they've got that all yeah. down amazing but like the actual language I mean, I love Erlang. I'm just going to say it first, but it looks dreadful. <laughs> it looks so bad, and it's like it's really awkward in lots of ways, and the tooling is strange. Um, I was looking, I was refreshing myself earlier, and I had a look, and I'd forgotten about this. But to export a function out of a module, you have to export function name slash the number of arguments yes, it takes because so I start slash one. Yeah, because weird. function functions are. They're, in, they're not just a unique name. It's like unique based upon not just the name, but also the number of arguments. So you could have like um, main zero, main one, main two, main three. Those are all separate functions. It feels like something a computer could take care of for <laughs> us, though. Yeah, but you. But if you, it, it, it's true, and we do do that. But like, um, well, at least Gleam does do that. But if you have that control, you can actually do different things. Like you can actually, okay. it's actually more powerful. You can actually decide if you want to reference the one or the two or the three. It's that, you, I don't know. It, it, you just end up with, um, in Erlang, they do use it a lot. You know, it's these sort of things like whatever tools you're given and you're used to, you will find uses for. And yeah, so even yeah. though I, I as a, as a person who likes, um, you know, Rust and Elm and things like that, I'm like looking and go, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I like that feature very much. All the Erlang and uh, Elixir people complain constantly that they don't have uh, this when they're trying Gleam. So you're sort of damned either way, really. And with, um, so, you know, one of the goals of Gleam is to make all these wonderful things you get in the Erlang world, make them much less alien seeming to, you know, the rest of us. 
So people can, people, you know, because there's only so much strangeness you can tolerate. Like if someone is mildly interested in Erlang because they've heard these really cool things about this like super concurrent fault tolerant runtime and they're suddenly Mm -hmm. met with Erlang, they might go, this is just weird. This is too much. The weirdness is greater than my curiosity. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. So I want something that looks a lot more normal, you know, and even if that is um, worse in some ways, if we can get more people, that'd be better. And it'd be better in other ways, you know, it's always a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Let's use the word accessibility because that makes it sound really good. Okay, not weirdness, accessibility. Got not it. weirdness, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did I did so once was... ask the, the creator of, um, it, was, it was after a conference and I'd had a, had, a, I'd had a couple of beers, so I was feeling a bit brave. And I asked the, the creator of Erlang, why does it look like that? And he said, oh, you should have seen it before we open sourced it. It looked much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I can only imagine. That's Joe Armstrong, right? Uh, I was asking Verding, but yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. So did you explicitly, when you're going around picking up your favorite bits of languages, was mm-hmm. it always the case that you wanted to compete with, replace, mm-hmm. offer an alternative to Erlang, but be on the beam? Um, I, I, so I was very, I, I've been a beam user for a long time. Both, uh, I got it through through Elixir, and I quite quickly ended up writing Erlang as well. I, I quite enjoyed both languages, um, and it be it being a runtime that isn't used very much, and I love a lot. It just seemed like quite an obvious uh, choice to to use this. And even even before I was starting to think about like how could this be useful to people, it was like I really like this runtime. I really want to use it in my you know my my ideal pet programming language that no one's ever going to use. Um, <laughs> they seem like the right way to go. But I think even even if I was designing it to be like this is for people. Um, which I do now, but like from the very beginning, I think I would have made the same decision. Um, okay. But I don't see it as being competing so much because, you know, the, the, I think the people who are going to come to Erlang and the people who are going to come to Gleam are two different sets of people. Um, there's lots of people who, you know, there's lots of people who have an interest in the runtime, but will say, this thing has like a weird prologue mishmash syntax and it is dynamically typed and it has loads of, Sort of unusual, not quite, fun, not quite prologue, not quite this, not quite that um, patterns and stuff in it. That's probably not for me. Um, I'll go write Scala or something else. And there's lots of people yeah. who go, oh, it's got this weird Ruby, it's got this weird Ruby syntax. You know, I'm not sure about this Elixir thing. It's all these weird Lisp macros. That's not me. I, I won't use it either. Well, those the people who don't like those two things may like the idea of a C-looking, small um, functional um, language that has a uh, sort of an elm style type system you know so i don't think i don't think we're going to draw so many people from the erlang and elixir world i think it's going to be much more we're going to bring people to the um the beam community as a whole really so i'm hoping we'll work together and a lot of gleam as a language is 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 built around the idea of like interop between gleam and the other languages as well so hopefully people write things in it well people can write things in erlang and elixir and we can use them but hopefully it's also the way around we make it really easy to write things in gleam and then that will be able to use by the Erlang and Elixir folks as well. Okay, so th- that's often the overlooked that kind of two-way interop. Yes, like you can be both. You can both consume and provide. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, to- the tooling's a bit um, isn't quite as good there as I would like it to be because it depends upon the Erlang and Elixir people building a bit of tooling. But there, there's ways they can do it. Um, but yeah, I think there's like you know there's loads of value in it because we're not. I don't want to compete with Erlang Elixir because I'll lose. <laughs> and also, like, why would I want to compete with my closest neighbors? You know, I want to be we want to be working together. Um, yeah. And I wish more languages thought about it. Like uh, Erlang being sort of the universal language of the platform, it's quite easy to to work in both directions. But Elixir is very much designed to be able to use Erlang code, but it's a trickier in a lot of ways to um, use it from Erlang. And there's certain features you just can't use. Um, and that's just the trade-off I've made. Fair enough. Well, interrupt future if we'll get there eventually, mm-hmm. universal computing. But take me through the so I and I know a few programmers who've done this have written like a hobby programming language. It's kind of one of those rites of passage once you've been programming <laughs> for long enough. And you <clears throat> I realized two things from doing that. The first is that a programming language isn't magic, right? Mm-hmm. Writing a program that evaluates source code is actually really interesting and not that hard. Mm-hmm. But the journey from that hobby project to something you can actually put in production is huge. Yeah. Take me through your journey on that. 
I think it's, it's just stubbornness on my part, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I was, I was, um, I sort of explain to people who don't understand tech as being like um, a chap who's built a model railway in his garage. But it's like a very, very large ornate one with multiple layers and realistic representation of town. Like it's just, you, you, you look at it and you go, why have you done this? It's very impressive. But like, that was clearly a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just um, curiosity because this, this, I love languages and there's just so many bits you can dig into. Um, and so that kept me interested and busy for a few years. Um, well, maybe the first two or so, but I was I was quite lucky in that um, I was already fairly well known in the Erlang and Elixir world because I got onto Elixir quite early, and I'd done a thing of oh well Elixir doesn't have this thing that I used to use in um, Ruby or Elm or something. I really wish I had that. Maybe I'll try and make one. So I made a, a linter, um, okay. which was forked and is now. It's the main linter in the Elixir ecosystem, which is great because I don't have to maintain it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I wrote... Uh, Build it, open source it, push it out the door. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It, it's much better than the one I wrote, but it, 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 was, it was mine originally. Um, <laughs> and I wrote, I wrote a formatter because um, I thought Elm okay. format was amazing. And so that, that then inspired an official one. So just, just from these things, I've sort of known a little bit. Um, and then when I started doing this language thing and I put lots of like fashionable words on it, like types, people are like, oh, that's interesting. And it's sort of like people started chatting a bit because I'm always, I'm always insistent on, on um, developing in the open. So even though I wasn't really publicizing it, people would look at it and say, oh, look, this thing here. And then that gave me a lot more, um, you know, when people show interest in your work, you know, it gives you a lot more... Um, gives you encouragement you know you, you want to keep working on it and then yeah. i slowly got this idea like oh, actually you know maybe this maybe this i actually quite like all the ideas i've come to here after you know a couple of years of work on it maybe this could be useful for something um and yeah now we're in a place where people are using it which is why that's amazing yeah you must have put i mean there are a large number of pieces you must have put together along the way though because mm. right? just adding a type system to a platform that's never had a typed language. Yeah. That's a whole chunk of knowledge and research. Yeah, that was quite painful. Like I knew I, I was always a, a lover of, of well-typed languages, but mm. never knew how they worked, you know. Mm. So all, all, the, all the things in, I think part of the reason why Gleam is doing well is that I'm not a, like a, um, I'm not like a, a, a very academic person when it comes to like the theory of the implementing these things. Um, mm. I would describe myself more as like a language designer than I am a language imp compiler implementer or a runtime implementer, right. which is a shame because right. I think those are really fascinating things. But all my learning has been, I want specifically X. You know, I've, I've been, I've, I've um, spent a lot of time like experimenting with different language designs. Like what if, the, what if the language had this feature? And then I would like write loads of code as if it had that feature and then just like compile it in my head and go, what would that do? How would oh, yeah, that work? Yeah. How could I write these programs? And I'd go through that loop over and over again and go, right, I want this. Now, how does that, I know people can do this. How do I do it? And then I'd have to like find the, 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 the oh, and it, a suitable amount of um, understandable papers and stuff to try and work out. And it was just, it was misery, but um <laughs> I sort of know a bit about some type systems now, so that's good. Like enough awesome. to make a make a useful one. Could you pass um, the uh, exam now? I'm sure I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, not loaded into short term memory. I'm very good. I'm very good at anything that Gleam has inside it, and anything it doesn't, I don't know. And and it's frustrating a bit because you get to a point where like you understand it um, well enough, and that's because you've you've successfully implemented whatever that feature is. And I'd really like to continue learning it, but I actually need to do this other unrelated thing for the language. Because Gleam, Gleam's quite, um, one thing Gleam does, which uh, I, I think is quite clever, um, and I think more, more languages should do, is that like everything is, all, all the bits that you commonly touch are considered part of like the core language, not core language, but like the core project. Um, so we don't just have like a language and a compiler. We've also got a build tool and package manager and um language server and you know all these sorts of things and like a package index you know so we rather than leaving those things up to the community like that'll be baked in and that's resulting in like a really good experience but it just means i've, I've learned something interesting about type systems and i have to go work on like dependency resolution algorithms instead and i never actually get good yeah. at any of them 
that, that how on earth do you stay on top of all of that because each one of those could be a project in itself right mm-hmm. just building a package manager manager from scratch and making it good there are well, teams of people that do that yeah I, it's, uh, so with package management we can we're Luckily, we're forced to cheat a little bit in that you know we want to interrupt really well with the rest of the Beam language, so we use their package manager. So the the, okay. the, the side of um, you know uploading and distributing, well, all the server side stuff, somebody's already built that. We just have to use their API. Bit confusing because no one's really, I think, as far as I can tell, two people have integrated ever with that API. So the docs are not amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Three now. Um, so Three. By the time, so by the time I worked out that, uh, yeah. Uh, I only need to do the, the client side, but that's still really complicated. Like the algorithms for how you, um, you know, work out which versions to use with a bunch of uh, bunch of constraints is quite challenging. Um, but yeah, it, a lot of it is just working out what is the it, it's the whole startup thing, right? You know, how, what is the MVP of each things? What is the smallest useful um, approach? And having a language that is designed to be small because I think that is a better experience as a user actually makes it a lot easier to implement as well. If I was trying to make a Rust or a Scala, it would never be possible, would it? But I'm trying to make a Lua or a Go, so. Right, yeah. Oh, I can hear your cat in the background. Mm. Happy little guy. (laughs) So do you think, because I've followed a bit about your design process and mm-hmm. you say you're doing like fantasy programming design, mm-hmm. right? I also know you've done things like um, gone off to Twitter and said, hey, what syntax would you expect for this behavior and stuff? And you've run yeah. regular Twitter polls on design and you're keeping the language small and that allows you to make certain design choices. What's been important about making a cohesive language? Some languages do that well, some do it badly. How do mm. you approach that? Um, so so the, the, all the polls and stuff is really useful because I you know, I want to make things not, what, what's the word we said? Accessible. Um, yeah, not principle weird. of least surprise. Yeah, and I just find that um, I'm often wrong just about what is normal and what isn't. You know, I think it's easy to assume <laughs> that your opinion is the, is the standard one, but I just isn't. I've got... So it's really useful to just every now and again sort of um, sense check and say, like, which of these two things looks, you know, try not to ask it directly, like, which two things looks least weird, but, like, sort of ask them simple questions about some example code and just see which ones people get confused by. Um, Because, yeah, even if I think something else is a better idea, I'm probably wrong. Um, But it's quite tricky. Just, like, you just have to spend, I think, just doing things really slowly really helps. I I think that's another reason why, you know, Having something that's small where I'm doing the majority of the work really helps because I get to spend an awful lot of time. Because I'm, you know, I'll be working on a package manager or something, and I will have had an idea for something six months before I even started that, but I'm still working on this for six months. So I've got like a year of like, you know, I'm having breakfast staring at the window. I'm like, well, what if it did this thing? How would that impact this thing? Hmm. Sort of like gently brewing ideas in the back of your head. And after like 12 months of, of thinking about these things, you'll have enough moments where something went, oh, but that would interact with this thing. Oh, that's interesting. What about that? And you normally end up sort of accidentally covering all of it just by, well, I guess, obsessively thinking about it for an extreme amount of time. Slow, slow programming. That's my um Slow but obsessive. Yeah. Never stop thinking, but spend a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I know I'm going to try not to name names, but there are some languages that look like the author has woken up in the morning with a new feature idea, thrown it together as fast as possible and shipped mm. it out the door. Yeah. Um, uh, and then th- there are some that feel more cohesive, right? Yeah. And I want to do that. It feels great to like have an idea, throw it together and ship it. Like yeah. I, I sort of, I dream of um, finishing Gleam, you know, and handing it <laughs> over to some, some Gleam foundation that can do things. And then I can just make the language that's all the bad ideas that I didn't do along the way. Because <laughs> they're, they're always like, Oh, the, the really the um, the medium bad ideas are where they're bad, and you go, yeah, that's not clever. Let's not do that. But the really bad ideas, are the ones where you go, ooh, ooh, that sounds really good. Let's do that. And then have you an think, example. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's always it's always it's always like whatever sounds fanciest possible. So like one that is um, dangerously good sounding is algebraic effects. 
because you can okay, do all yeah. sorts of exciting things with that. Like you can model, you can in user land model things like async await and exceptions and, and try catch and all that sort of stuff. Like it's a, clearly a really powerful thing. And um, I think a lot of future languages will probably have it in, in some degree and it will just become normal. And that's, and I, that's part of why it's such a dangerous idea because it goes, that sounds great. But actually, would that align with any of the goals of the project whatsoever? I'm trying to make a, like a really simple language that's really approachable and I'm going to be wedging in a yeah, very powerful tool, which is sort of experimental in a few very complicated languages. Um, and it would completely destroy interop with, you know, interop in the other direction with Erlang and Elixir and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just not, it's not particularly smart, I don't think. Yeah, I can see why you'd want to leave it on the table, but still be hankering to revisit it at some point. I really want it. It's just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. So if you've left that on the table, and it does seem like a sensible choice. Yeah. Which bits Which bits have you taken that, if I want to get started learning Gleam, what mm. do you think are the bits I need to know? Ooh, this is something I'm thinking about at the moment because I'm trying to make a course for learning Gleam. Ooh. Yeah, so um, I've got some funding from the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, which is a lovely org to try and like grow the the, you know, the community in general to um, make a syllabus on exorcism, if you've come across that, which is a, a platform for, for practicing and learning different languages. So in oh, yeah, yeah. in February we launched a uh, a regular track um, on Exorcism, which they featured, which was really lovely of them. Which is basically like here's a small programming challenge, solve it, and then you can get um, you know you can have a bunch of tests um, automatically run for you. But then also you can be mentored by you know a member of the community, and it's just a really fab little, it's a really fab site. Really recommend using it if you want to. Um, yeah, practice any languages but they also have like another layer on top of that which is a syllabus right so as well as having challenges they can they have special challenges which teach you individual concepts of a language so if you've got a well-made syllabus you can go from being a programmer not not you know you need to know a bit of programming and you should be able to go to um from zero to usable of a language uh, by going through the course which is really exciting oh, so cool. um what do you need to know not much really it's just, we try to try to boil it down I, I, again i'm playing on easy mode because it's such a small language but um <laughs> it's mostly just uh functions and values and pattern matching and and, and records and all that sort of jazz okay okay You're, uh, so but i'm gonna need to mix that into some knowledge i mean erlang is very heavily actor based mm -hmm. is gleam mm -hmm. like deep knee deep in the actor model Do I need no to learn that? So in I think it, I think it's always tricky with talking about OTP, the the active framework of Erlang, because um, Erlang is also quite a small language. It's odd, but it's quite a small language. Mm -hmm. um, so when you learn Erlang, you spend like this much time learning Erlang and then this much time learning the active framework, because it's right. you know it's much more than just like um, async await in in or you know it's much more than like a little concurrency module in other languages it's it's yeah. in many ways much more akin to an operating system you know all these like independent things and ways that they talk to each other and patterns you should use so they can look after each other and deal with failure and all this sort of stuff and it's really quite complicated and i think if you go into beam programming through erlang you'll probably be spending a lot of time looking at that stuff just because that's quite at the forefront of the um of that community However, if you learn if you learn Beam programming through Elixir, they've got much more of a spin on normal sort of business programming. Um, so you know, making web apps and websites and, and this sort of jazz and managing databases. And even though your code is all running inside this actor framework, you may never actually see. Like I think I think maybe I've obviously got no data, but I think maybe the majority of Elixir programmers don't write any um, OTP code at all because they just use, well, I'm using the web server that comes with the popular web framework and it has loads of actors under the hood and their pub subsystems are actors and all these other things are actors. But like, I just write the web handler bit that talks to a database connection okay. that it's all actors again. And you just don't worry yeah. about it. It looks very much like if you're writing an application in, well, even um, perhaps like Ruby on Rails or Python or something. 
because there's not, there's not even any async await inside the the code because it's all just like outside of it wrapping your your handler stuff. Right. So, because I've always had the impression that you have to get into that model to get anywhere with Erlang. No. But, but I could opt into that later once I've got my feet under the table. Yeah, and you may never get there. So if you, <clears throat> the nice thing about um, the actor model over like async await or callbacks from futures and things like that is that um, if you're, each actor only performs one piece of work. Uh, so it's entirely single threaded. You know, you, you just write code that says, well, I pull the, I, I pull the, um, the body off of the request object. There's no async. You just block the thread and then, oh, and then I'm talk to the database. No async, block the thread. And then I'm going to send the response. No async, block the thread. You know, it does, it looks like, um, you know, it looks like it should be really inefficient, naive code that, you know, causes the whole, uh, the operating system thread to be blocked. But it doesn't because it's like you're just blocking this one actor. You can have, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of them quite happily. And people routinely do. Right? It's it's a very normal thing in the yeah. uh, Beam scheduler, right? Yeah, yeah. It's super normal. Like you should be doing that. You, you, you know, you, you write the sim. So um, um, Joe Armstrong would say it's really hard to make one web server that can handle a million requests concurrently. But it's really easy to make one web server that can run one uh request and then run a million of them and like that's kind of the whole idea of um like the erlang otp actor thing it's like just do the thing that's really simple for your little whatever the smallest task is and you multiplex it in a completely different place and it also means when something goes wrong you don't go well how do i discard that one bit of state and then not impact with the other ones you go well it's just this tiny little box like oof off it goes (laughs) everything else is okay this is something I love in programming when we when we have a different way of looking at the same problem that gives mm. really interesting different results. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna have to find time to play with Gleam. Um, yes. Um, so there are two other things I really want to ask you, and maybe we should talk about keeping the lights on first. Okay. Because you've you've um, done a mixture of things to keep developing this, including being poor, right? Yes. That was a good What's one. it like being an independent language designer <laughs> who has um, a cat to feed? It would. It, so traditionally, the experience has been: I work a job for a while, and I get progressively more irritated with the job. Not because the job's bad, although I have had some of those, but just because I wanted to be doing this other thing, and I'm spending my evenings and week, weekends doing it. And then somebody, right, I'm going to quit, and I'm going to work full time on Gleam, and then I just watch my bank balance do this. And then, <laughs> then down, at some point, I go, down. oh, so the, I need, you know, rent's this much and my, my bank balance is this much. I should yeah. probably get a job <laughs> in the next 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I did that like, I don't know, two or three times. Um, but then at some point, uh, GitHub released their GitHub sponsors program, which is like, you know, pa- oh, yeah. Patreon for programmers. Um, mm. And some people are like, you should sign up to that. And I thought, you know, I, the idea that this would ever be a project that could sustain me, I just never even considered it really because um, that just making money from open source seems completely impossible yeah. as far as I can tell, unless you've got something very complicated to sell on top of it. Um, yeah. So I signed up and then to my surprise, a few people started, um, yeah, a few people started sponsoring me and I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. I didn't realize I had that, like, that level of support and I just, um, you know, I started marketing it a little more focusing a bit more on um you know trying to write things are actually just good like let's write more blog posts about how these how how gleam works and what's going on in the gleam world so people can keep track of what's going on and then it just steadily grew and it grew to a point at which um yeah it it, it's a lot smaller of an income than any other job i've had in a long time however it is actually enough to pay the bills and yes i'll go how much money am i willing to sacrifice in order to like um, a make Gleam successful and make it exist, uh, but also you know not have a boss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> work, work yeah. on something I care about, um, and now, yeah, that's a good trade. So now I'm I'm have less money, but can can make this thing happen, which is really good. And then that's, uh, yeah. always looking for like little bits on the side to to um, you know ways to make money. So if I can find a piece of work that aligns with Gleam. Um, but also can bring some money to you know help make it a bit more sustainable. Um, then that's worth doing. Like applying for um, grants and stuff. Like the 
Erlang, as in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation one, which I mentioned earlier, for making this yeah. course to learn Gleam. Like that, that's a good example for that sort of thing. I'd love to do more stuff like that. Ah, cool. Can I ask? I mean, feel free to refuse to answer this question because it's about money. But mm. the the whole um, GitHub sponsorship thing mm. is it like? Have you got a few large sponsors? Is it lots yeah. of little people? What are the what are the rough numbers in there? It, it's almost entirely. Uh, well, no. Um, uh, the biggest sponsor is Fly, the deployment platform. Um, oh, yeah. it's, it's, really good, it's also a really good product. I'm not, I, don't, that, I don't have to say that, but it's good. You should probably use it. Uh, I use it. Um, Fly.io, right? Yeah. The link yeah. to that. Yeah, I, 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 I nerd, nerd out about them because they've got, they've got good developer experience, but they just do clever stuff with Firecracker VMs. And I'm just like, oh, that's really clever. I like that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so they, they give about maybe a third maybe a bit more than a third. Okay. And um, then the rest is like people who, who could be giving anywhere between like, you know, $1, $5, $10. And then a few people give a hundred, which is just amazing for, for people. Wow. Um, I mean, my, my ideal situation is, would be that uh, in the future, the companies that are using Gleam, they'll all give a sm like, you know, a, an amount of money that is almost insignificant to a business to, um, not just Gleam, but their dependencies in general. I think companies should give a small amount of money to to support their, um, you know, any open source projects they use, and then that will be, uh, you know, much less scary for me if I've got like you know tens of businesses giving a small amount of money rather than rely mostly on one company giving a large amount. Because the yeah, Fly guys yeah. have been fantastic, um, and you know, I do hope that they continue to support. Um, I'm extremely grateful, but like, there's no reason why they have to. You know, it may, and point may come in the future. They decide that they want to do something else, and that that's that'll be uh, uncomfortable for me. So, yeah, yeah. So, Did you ever consider? Were you ever offered? Like, um, I know the inventor of Elm ended up mm -hmm. working for a company that used Elm heavily, and he yeah. was just employed to be their in-house language developer. Mm -hmm. Is that something you'd be interested in? I I had a few organizations sort of. Um, we didn't get very far down the process, I think, because I didn't sound very positive towards it. But a few people sort of like gently approached that. But I'm very concerned that um, having a single company have such a large investment or like a large perceived control in the language um, yeah. will really, you know, shape what kind of work get, that gets done. And I don't want to, well, I mean, I, I do actually, um, if people are sponsoring and they say, oh, we want to be, you know, this is a problem for us, or we want to be able to do that. I, I generally, you know, shift the backlog a bit to try and align with those needs. But if it was my employer, um, you know, suddenly it's not really my decision and I'm not sort of deciding, um, you know, what I think is best. I think there's actually going to be a bunch of obligation there. And then I'm not convinced that I'll be building the thing that is best for, um, you know, the Gleam community and future Gleam users. Because in theory, you know, if all goes well, this project's going to go on for decades and decades and decades, you know, yeah. hopefully last longer after, continue long after I've, um, you know, finished working on it. So, you know, what some company needs today is not super relevant. And I'd like to, to separate those things out as much as possible. So does that mean you're going for the like benevolent dictator for life? Model. I always, I always joke that it's the malevolent dictator for life. <laughs> <laughs> really depends on the author, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think that um, I think Elm um, Evan, the the Elm chap, did some good writing on this about um, you know I think it's a really good fit for a language at the start, or for, not just for language, for technical projects. Um, assuming you've got a good, uh, you know, assuming you get lucky with the person, I guess to some degree, and they make good decisions it's really helpful to to um you know what what can be more a cohesive decision making process than a single person eh? you know and, and not squabble yeah. and, and not get caught in these things and that can get you to a point when you're mature enough in order to go okay and now it's um much less pioneering and much more stewardship at that point i think yeah. you can spread it out a lot more and um, we're not quite there yet um i think we're pretty close um, I got the impression that Elm kind of burnt out before it got there by putting all yeah, the pressure on one person. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 tricky to talk about you know what's going on with Elm because um, I'm not privy to any of it. But no. um, it did seem at some point the updates just sort of stopped coming, and I, you know, 
he's clearly a very smart guy and I but I speculate it is you know might be burnout as you, as you suggest like he he seems to like um working on things um like having quite a high degree of control over it which you know all, all everyone in that sort of situation is going to have a high degree of control but I think delegation is so important you know um I I, I we're I'm very much an old open source nerd no, I'm not old, but I'm very, you know, been an open source nerd for a long for a long time, and as such, like I think the community aspect of creation is super important, and so so much of Gleam is is you know from the way that we manage the issues and the way that I try and interact with the um, you know the community, it's about trying to enable people to 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 get involved and, and build things, whether that be um, you know this person did this amazing piece of work that'd be really hard for me to do and it saved me loads of time awesome or if it's just this person made a pull request and it wasn't very good um, and we helped them get it there and it probably took a lot more time than if i just done it myself but they had a good time and now they're a member of the community like those are both wins those are both really good things and so like trying yeah. to grow try, trying to grow both of those things and all the other um you know interactions you can have is like super important and I hope it means if I, you know, if I were to vanish tomorrow, which I'm not going to, um, you know, <laughs> it would, the ball would the ball would keep going. Do you? So, have you got people like contributing tools, contributing to the language itself? Yeah, design decisions. How spread out from you is it? The majority of the compiler development is me, like you know, quite a large share. But the we we've got a. Um, the community is mostly focused around Discord, which is lovely. It's just, it's the friendliest, cheeriest bunch of people ever. Um, and people are just like, just there to hang out. Some, some people, some people are there because they weren't really in, interested, involved in the, the, you know, the language development and, and tools and all sorts of things. They're making like great libraries and things. And, you know, there's a few academic types who do a lot, you know, write actually quite long form posts about um, different language features and how they can interact with each other and like, oh, well, and the references to papers and, and, and such. And then there's yeah. the people who just sort of use Gleam and they mostly just sort of, um, you know, they maybe they share some libraries they've made or like show some pet projects they've got. And there's just some people who don't use Gleam and they're just there because they like it. Like not 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 it is in Gleam. They like the people. <laughs> like they joined it. They was like, have you ever have you ever used Gleam? Like, oh yeah, I installed it once. I've never run it. I was like, you're here every day. <laughs> but it's quite nice. Like, it, I think it clearly shows that um, we're doing something right with building a community. If some people are just there because they like the community so much, like that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It makes me imagine that you're. Uh, eventually going to get sponsorship to buy like a hundred acre ranch the whole clean <laughs> community will just work the ranch <laughs> where, where programmers go to retire yes yeah absolutely <laughs> or when they're burnt out the uh, yeah. louis pilfold burnt out retirement clinic <laughs> gone to live on a farm yeah i love it but what 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 is the future of gleam i mean if i look at gleam two years from now will i see exciting new features louis pilfold being the mc of gleam Conf? Oh, maybe I've, I've made a, a tricky decision lately to like do a lot less um like talking at conferences hmm. um and because I, I really enjoy it but it just uh, it takes me a long time to write a talk i know some people can write a talk on the train on the way over but maybe it's because i did a lot of theater when i was younger but it, uh, it always ends up like writing a script and rehearsing the thing and like yeah, doing yeah, iterations yeah. on it and it just takes many 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 hours and like i could write a blog post in much less time than this and it'll be read by much more people. And then I can go and make a second blog post or a third or like work on a feature and these sort of things. And, you know, at, at this point in time where, um, you know, people people are looking at Gleam, you know, it's got a lot of, of momentum, which is really exciting. Like it's got more stars on GitHub than F Sharp, which I find bizarre. Wow. Uh, yeah. Like how, how did that happen? So like now is the time <laughs> to to push so we've got to be really mm. efficient with time and that isn't conferences at the moment but i'm hoping somebody will do a gleam comp because I, you know, i'll definitely definitely do something for that um but in, in the next two years like i we're getting we're finally getting to the point where the language is starting to look complete that doesn't mean nothing will be added anymore but like all the things that i think have been you know if there was a version one of gleam it, the language would have to have this 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 and this and that's always just seemed like this mountain on 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 the horizon but now it looks like a hill you know like it's still a very large it's still <laughs> yeah. huge but like it's it's um yeah it's it's on the horizon which is really exciting 
And then there'll be decisions about, okay, does that mean we do version one now? What does what, what, what does version one actually mean when um, the binary doesn't have just the compiler and language in it, but it also has build tools and a language server and all these other things? Like, can I have some of those be like zero point something, or is the version one of the language only stability guarantees are only for the language itself, and it's not for the surrounding things? So there's a lot of there's lots of um, you know, nuances to work out. And I'd like to have um, a good amount of uh, just data on how people are using it and finding it in, in, in production. Because, you know, it, it, I feel pretty confident we've got a good design, but it may be after two years, people are like, actually, this thing sucks. Like that thing there is rubbish. And I go, okay, cool. We're going to fix that. And it'd be really nice if that was like pre one rather than that's it. Well, let's do one to two. Because um, you know the yeah. optics, uh, it'd be the same at work. The upgrade process would be the same, but it would just feel quite different to the community. I think. So you want the major features to be ironed out in production for a while before you put the production stamp on it? I think so. Like, I, 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 well, I just want to have some. I just want to have like more data. More data is always good. Like for any decision, you know, if you're not entirely sure about something, just wait a bit. Um, have more, have more shower thoughts, and talk to more people, and <laughs> do more experiments. Go out into the Gleam community, spawn a number of actors, and see which ones crash. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now you're talking. Well, I am going to go and check it out because I've got the rest of the afternoon off. Um, cool, Louis. That sounds absolutely great. I'm looking forward to getting my hands dirty with a language that isn't as weird as Erlang, but has the power. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me on this. I'll speak no, to thank you again you. soon. Talk to you soon. And it's going to be great having you in the Gleam community. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good plug. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Louis. And thank you to Louis' cat, Newbie for making a guest appearance there. With that, I think I am going to head off and kick the tyres on Gleam. I've got some spare time at the moment, so I'm going to treat myself to a bit of programming. If you want to learn more about Gleam, head to gleam.run. That's the website with all the details. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably also want to look at packages.gleam.run to see what kind of library support it's got. Before you head there, this is the part of a podcast where I tell you about our sponsor, but we, we don't actually have a sponsor yet. Yet. So this week's episode is sponsored by Having a Nice Cup of Tea. Whether you're listening to this podcast in the gym, the kitchen, or on the way to a trumpet lesson, why not follow it up with a nice cup of tea and perhaps a biscuit? If you want to throw a biscuit my way and support future episodes of Developer Voices, please consider clicking like and subscribe and share and all those buttons. It would be great if you share it with a friend who you think might be interested. And we all know the algorithms are trying to figure out what interests people. So if you found this interesting, tell them with a click, please. And with that, I think we're at the end of this episode. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Louis Pilfold. Thank you for listening.